You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Back in 2018, the New York Times had an article titled, We're All Afraid to Talk About Money. It discusses how most of us know our physical stats like height, weight, and clothing sizes. Yet, people feel a particular fear or shame around what their finances look like. Also, there is an assumption of being rude when asking someone else about their finances. So all of these forces, the social taboo, the intimidation factor, embarrassment, they come together to keep us from talking about money and improving our circumstances. The article states a survey from Fidelity Investments that found 43% of Americans don't know how much money their spouse makes. Yet, fighting about money is a top predictor of divorce. Well, today I'm certainly not looking to start any fights about money, but I am once again joined by lighting designer and fellow podcaster Ethan Steimel, as we both confront the stigma around such discussions. He'll be sharing three specific stories of his own financial journey, including one important issue that's come up between him and his wife. I got to take a side note here and say that I love that your show exists to have conversations like this because I know that I am not alone in this and I have never talked about it with anybody. Welcome to another episode of Why I'll Never Make It, a top 25 theater podcast featuring honest conversations with fellow creatives on what holds us back and the challenges us as actors and artists face. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver Jones, an actor and singer who knows firsthand the ups and downs we all confront. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can sign up for the Win Me newsletter and learn about upcoming guests and useful artistic resources. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com, or look for the link in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Well, hello, Ethan. Thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. It's uh, it's good to be able to talk to you again. Patrick, thank you. I'm, I'm honored not only to have been on your show once, but to be asked to come back. It's an honor. <laughs> <laughs> well, that first was really just to introduce your podcast. And that episode with Jonathan was really just so good. Was there anything, an after the interview kind of moment or something that uh, didn't make it into the episode? Well, actually, there's something I thought of since we talked, which was I didn't even mention that he was a dancer in Cats. And I I can't remember if it was Broadway or national tours. He was in a lot of different versions, but he said he was making a good weekly salary because for some reason, you know, the stage was raked or there was something where they were, the actors had legally by equity rules had to get paid a little bit more for such and such a thing. And so he, at the end of it, was just looking at the end of one of the years and said, that's how much money went into the pension fund or the 401k fund, whatever it is for actors. And that was just that reminder to me that if you can get a, a consistent gig, that's where you can save and invest. So that's the hard thing for actors is doing a two week show here, a two week show there. But if you can get on one of those long running shows, you know, mm-hmm. th- but, but the thing is, if you could just do it for, a year or two, that can be enough to give you enough of a cushion to sort of be able to choose other things. And so that's a that's a really important thing to take note is, you know, how do you get one of those jobs? I don't know. But he, he had it and and 
it made things easier from from that point on. So I the takeaway here is find one of those things. I've I've never had one of those. <laughs> <laughs> well, that actually gets us into the first story, which is about finding that job, finding that big Broadway job. I know for myself and this podcast, why I'll never make it. It came out of that idea of I came here to be on Broadway. I'm still not on Broadway. What is holding me back? And you've been going through that same thing of from the lighting designer perspective, but you still have those same aspirations of finding that Broadway contract. Yeah, 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 baby. I'm just a human living in this world, doing my thing, freelancing right and left. Yeah, so I'm 34 and I've been in New York now for nine years and I'm designing off-off-Broadway here, off-off-Broadway there, doing a little lighting in TV, lighting some news, some CNN, some Bloomberg. And I have not gotten a Broadway show to design on my own. I've assisted on a couple, but assisting is very different than being in the designer seat and getting to call all the shots. And of course, it's not really about the shots for me or, or being in control because, and maybe it should be, maybe my ego needs to be bigger and I need to, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's part of the problem we're finding here. But, uh, when I first moved to New York, so I'm originally from Missouri. So I moved here with what I called the five-year plan. You know, everybody knows this. Everybody. Oh, I, I, th I think actors come with the same thing because I came before I was 40. So it was like, okay, so by 40, I'm going to hit it. So still waiting. Yeah. I yeah. came before I was 30. And I was, <laughs> by 30, I was going to have it. Um, so I came with the classic five-year plan that I was going to come up. I was going to work on Broadway. I was going to get a Broadway design. And then once I had that design, and if it came with a Tony Award, so be it. That would just make it easier. But I was going <laughs> to then be able to teach anywhere I wanted, right? You know, there's a school somewhere back in Missouri. That so your say, eventual goal is to teach? Excellent question, Patrick. <laughs> So that was the five-year plan. And about year two, I realized I don't like teaching. I don't want to teach. I <laughs> The only way I would ever be coerced into teaching is if I had a really good group of students who just made my life joyful and wanted to learn and all this and be great. But students that I've seen since then have not changed my mind in that regard. I don't know how you would get the right group. Um, so yeah, about two, year two, I realized I want to make a good teacher and I don't want to teach. Um, but I still had that idea of getting a Broadway design. And on my own podcast, I've had people on and they've said things like, you know, anybody who just wants to design on Broadway and that's their goal, I feel sad for those people. <laughs> and I get really quiet and I say, yeah, yeah, me too. I get sad I for those people. I mean, but the thing is, it's like... Broadway is the ultimate when it comes to theater. And so as an actor, then of course, if I'm a theater actor, musicals especially, Broadway is the ultimate. When it comes to theater lighting design, there's there's Broadway, there's West End. So, I mean, those are the two places to go. So yeah. why, why wouldn't that exactly. be your goal? <laughs> I totally agree. Also, those people that say that already have designed on Broadway. So... That might have right. something to do with this. <laughs> I will say that I've had guests on as well. And I know that they're coming from a good place when they say it. But when they say that Broadway is just a location, theater is theater. It's important to create art and just find that passion. I'm like, yes, that is really good and wonderful place to be once you've gotten that Broadway contract. Before you get that Broadway contract and... Yes, our self-worth shouldn't be based upon our contracts, but there is that affirmation somewhat to ourselves, but I think even more so to other people. It's like, look, this is what I've been preparing for. I know I've been acting since I was, you know, you know, knee high. And so now this is the culmination of everything that I've wanted, that my parents and aunts and uncles and friends, and they've all seen me do this, work toward this, and I finally made it. And I'm sure it's the same from the lighting designer standpoint that I worked, I tried, I, I learned this, I learned that, I've, I've created these beautiful things, and now other people get to see it, and I'm affirmed in that respect. Yeah. And I also understand Broadway designers, actors saying, oh yeah, I did that, been there, done that, if I do it again, great. But, you know, there's more to life than that. 
Totally agree with that. Um, but I have assisted on the two Broadway shows. And I know when I lived in Missouri, the Internet Broadway database, ibdb.com, was in its early ages, a really rough site to go on. But I went on it. I look up all the designers in their credits and I say, wow, this person's done this many shows and this many shows. And when you assist, you get your page on there. So I did my first Broadway assist and I got an IBDB page. And so it's like, oh, you could look up Ethan Stimel and see, oh, he assisted on a show. And then I did another and now I have two credits. I have two. But it's not my own design. And why do I want a Broadway design? I think you said it well earlier. It's Broadway. It's That's where theater is. And so, but if we think about it, there's only 40 Broadway shows that open in a good year. And does that, right. you know. So it's limited. So it's limited because there's only 42 Broadway theaters and half of them already have, have permanent wickeds and phantoms in it. So there's only 40 openings or so every Tony season. And so there's only, and there's only 40 design slots that are there. So here I am obsessing over this thing where there's 40 a year and I haven't gotten my one. And so what do I want? Well, <laughs> originally it was, oh, I want it. So I have the credit so I can go. You want it for the street cred because then it's like, oh, you've been on Broadway. Oh, you've done your thing. Right. Because it's the same for actors. It's like, once I get my Broadway credit, I will forever be Broadway actor, Patrick Oliver Jones. You would forever be Broadway designer, Ethan Simel. Yeah, you're totally right. <laughs> and I also want it as a paycheck because not that like a Broadway minimum for a designer is a big chunk of change, but you're also putting in three months of time or more for that chunk of change. So when you divide it out, you'll have to do other shows to actually make enough money for that Broadway design. Now, see, this is very interesting in how it's different from actors in that the design work, the the layouts, the all that stuff that you're doing beforehand you don't get paid for that? It's only once rehearsals begin? Or is there a certain like stipend that you're given? Or how does that work? There's, so we have a union, USA 829, and there's all sorts of rules for it. But roughly it boils down to a third, a third, a third. So you're paid a third up front, then a third somewhere else, and the last third at opening. Something like that. Everybody can negotiate it differently, and you can take it differently. But a design is also paid 1099. So it's like one lump sum versus if you're an assistant designer, they put you on a W-2 and it's a weekly thing, which is actually really beneficial for some of the assistants and associates because they end up maybe making more than the designer (laughs) because they're getting that. The minimum right now is $1,587 a week for an assistant, I think. How many weeks usually is an assistant designer hired for? Depends on the show. Like Music Man, probably three months or four months. West Side Story is the latest one I did, and that was four months. That was October, sort of up to February, end of January. But then I had done the one before that was Choir Boy, and that was at Manhattan Theater Club, which is a nonprofit Broadway, and that was only three weeks because they have they do like four months here, four months, four months. They'll do like three shows a year. And so that's a truncated time and all that. Yeah, speaking of the nonprofit theater, it's one of those things that's very interesting, and I have my own issues with it because Roundabout, Manhattan Theater Club, Lincoln Center, these are more nonprofit theater organizations. They still produce Broadway shows, yet their Broadway minimums, as far as pay, are much lower than, say, if you're at the St. James Theater in Midtown. Even though it's still a Broadway show, you're still going to be up for the same Tony Award, and ticket prices are still the same, mind you. But for whatever reason, I know actor-wise, it's paid like four or $500 less than the Broadway minimum because you're under a different contract. Is it the same with designers? It is 100% the same. And I'll just use Manhattan Theater Club as an example. So the Broadway minimum for commercial... All Broadway is commercial. Who am I kidding? But the Broadway minimum for commercial is the $1,500 or so for an assistant. At Manhattan Theater Club, it's $1,100 because they've negotiated this contract. And that totally surprised me when I got my first assistance because it was like, oh, I'm going to be making $1,500. And then I get the paperwork and it's like, oh, we're on some sort of Lort D plus A plus contract. So you're going to make $1,100. So 
I've sort of run the numbers a couple times on my show where it's like $1,100 in New York City if you were lucky to be employed for 52 weeks. Yeah, you can live on it, but who can be employed for 52 weeks? That lucky, lucky person. And <laughs> and also, you're not going to take a vacation. You're not going to take some time off. You're not going to get sick. So I have a big bone to pick with this, but it's a big organization and world. So I don't, I'm not mounting a campaign about it, but I do think it's very unfair for companies to go up for Tony Awards paying two thirds or less of what other companies have to pay for to go up for a Tony Award. And I know there's some artistic merit in that, well, this show wouldn't make it. It's not financially viable, but I don't buy that. It's like, no, if, if you get Kelly O'Hara in South Pacific, then that's going to make money whether Lincoln Center does it or whether it's another producer that puts it in, you know, the the St. James Theater. Like th that's going to make money and the ticket prices are the same. So that's the other part that I don't get. Yeah. And, and it goes back to the money being a game. I think I have such a bone to pick because I received a paycheck that was two thirds of what the minimum was, you know, and why do we have this minimum if we're only going to make certain people have to pay that minimum? And... Another thing is you can negotiate as an assistant or as a designer, but the reality is people are making the minimums. So, and if you're getting more than that, you're getting 20 extra a week or something like that. So yeah, you could say, oh, it's 1100 minimum, but you'll negotiate higher. No, with a nonprofit, it's very rare that you can do that. And even on commercial, also very rare. The thing is, and this leads us into our second story, is that, yes, there's the paycheck for the daily expenses, hopefully getting enough for vacations and just enjoyment out of life, but it's also to pay for things like college. I didn't do much of that. I, I really just took out loans, so I really didn't start paying for college till after. Was it the same for you as far as you really didn't start paying for college till after, or did you do it while you were there? Oh, I love this question, and I've never actually talked about this my wife, Nicole, she's always telling me, you need to tell people like how you paid for college. And I'm like, no, no, my show isn't about me. It's about other things and learning, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Well, this is why I wanted to talk to you so we can finally pick your brain. <laughs> so I have an aversion for debt. And I didn't realize that that's a really good thing. And I realized when I got out of college and I didn't have any student loans, that is a massive, massive good thing. And that's like, almost unheard of. Yeah. It's like looking back, I'm like, how did I get that lucky? It's incredible. So I'll tell you how I got that lucky. <laughs> Growing up, my parents always said, if you want to go to college, you're going to have to pay for it. And the expectation was always that you will go to college. Uh, both my parents went to college. And while I knew they weren't going to pay for it, you know, they couldn't afford it. They needed to save for their own retirement. Uh, it was an expectation that I would go. So there's something, or at least was when I was in high school, called the ACT. And you would take it. And in Missouri, if you got a 30 on it, you could get a full ride. So I think you'd have to pay for your housing or something, but your tuition would be covered. I didn't get a 30. <laughs> Nor did but I. I tried really hard to get a 30. <laughs> I ended up, you can take the test multiple times. So I ended up getting a 28, which is pretty good. But not good enough, but it did pay for like a third. It was like $3,000 a year. So I actually did have like a quarter of it was paid for by the state of Missouri. So I started, I started there, but then I going into it, knowing that I had to pay for it and knowing they send you the loan paperwork, like the Pell grants or whatever. And it's very clear that you have to pay that money back. And what's not so clear is that you have to pay a lot of interest on that. I didn't even notice that, but I'm now very aware of that. But they send it to you and they say, you can get thousands of dollars. Like we're talking like 17,000 or 50,000 a year, like some insane amount of money. Oh, here's another trick is that I knew I was going into theater and nobody has ever said go into theater for the money. So I knew I had to pay for college. I knew I was going into theater. So why would I rack up a bunch of debt? So I look at the paperwork for the amounts of money and I chose a school. I went to Missouri State University. I was accepted into one in St. Louis called Webster University and it was absurdly priced. And they gave me an amazing financial package, which goes back to money being a game because 
they're somehow able to offer thousands and thousands of dollars for their overpriced education, <laughs> which probably means that half of it's not really anything. But at the same time, Webster is known for their, especially technical design, they're known for that side of theater. And so, yeah, they, they have a bit of a name recognition. And, and that's one thing that I didn't realize till much later after college, how big that University of Michigan or Penn State or CCM or all these schools that are actor magnets, that if you have that on your resume, it puts you up a notch that other schools wouldn't. So did that factor into which school you chose at all as far as like their reputation? So I really wanted to go to Webster because in Missouri, it is probably the top theater school. It's one of the top. So I knew that it would be better for my career to go to Webster but I just didn't want to take on that debt. And so I went to a state school, Missouri State University in Springfield, Missouri, which was four hours away from where I grew up, whereas Webster was actually like 45 minute drive. I could have stayed at home and saved money on the dorm. Um, but yeah, I chose Missouri State. And of course, I'm happy that I went there. Totally lovely school, highly recommend. But I went there as, as a choice for the money. And then knowing that I needed to pay it, I remember I had to pay for my housing and the paycheck was like $3,000 that I had to send off. I had to write a check for $3,000. And at that time in my life, that was the biggest amount of money that I had ever sent off. And it was like mind boggling because I worked my junior year of high school, my senior year of high school, I was working, working, working all these, of course, minimum wage jobs to save up, you know, and I think I, I at the end had six or $7,000 in my bank account. So when I sent off the paycheck for the first semester of housing, $3,000, it was like, there's half of my lifetime savings <laughs> <laughs> gone, gone away. And, but knowing the summer before going to college, I worked at McDonald's overnights. So I worked from like 10 PM to 6 AM. And then I then worked at a movie theater selling popcorn. <laughs> so I would go sleep for a few hours. Then I would go at 11 from 11 to seven, I think. Then I would go home, sleep an hour, maybe, and then go back to McDonald's. Oh my and gosh. if you've ever worked an overnight shift at a fast food restaurant, you don't get breaks because there's only a couple of you there. And so you just can't take a break, which I'm sure is illegal or whatever. And technically you get a break or something, but let's face it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Technically. Like I almost took up smoking just so I could have a little break. But then you go out for smoking, which I never did. I'm not a smoker. But you just sit, see a line of cars around the drive-thru waiting for you. And you know that they're all waiting for me. Like if I, yeah, I can take a 15 minute break, but that's not fair to them. <laughs> <laughs> not to toot my own horn, but I'm a fairly hard worker. And so I would, I just can't sit still. So I would like constantly be working. So maybe there was a lull, but then there was all this stuff that you needed to do to make sure the morning crew had their stuff set out. Right. So even if there weren't customers, <laughs> okay. you found other things to do. Yeah. Yeah. But at the time you could work 40 hours a week. And so I would do that at McDonald's and then the movie theater. So here's a weird thing that bone to pick about nonprofit Broadway. So movie theaters are somehow classified as entertainment something. So they can pay people for working more than 40 hours without giving them overtime or anything. Another thing I don't recommend working at a movie theater if you're like me, because I would then work more than the 40 hours but it would still be that minimum wage, unfortunately. Ugh. And then to top it off, I also worked on Saturdays at a place where you would go into a computer and a box of papers and you would scan them in so that the bank or whatever could have the digital records of the... So I was... I, I look at my calendar. I should have saved it, but I... Is there even 120 hours or 100 hours in a week? But I was actually working that amount of hours. That's insane. But all that just to pay off college. So anyway, I'm not saying that to complain about my life. I'm, I'm very happy. Um, and looking back, I would have tried to do it differently, but I would still try not to have the debt. And then of course, then once you get into school, if anybody's gone away to school, there's something called an RA, like a resident assistant. So at the dorms, every floor has somebody to just like oversee it and do all the paperwork and all that. So I thankfully, after my first year, so remember I had to pay 3000 for housing first semester, 3000 for housing second semester. That's my life savings. Thankfully, I was able to apply and get an RA position. So then my next three years, I know it's cool to move off campus and get your own place. Not Ethan. I did not want to pay for an apartment. So I lived in the dorms all four years. And the three of them, I was a resident assistant. So I was able to work for the university, which everybody knows, everybody listening to this knows that theater takes a lot of time. 
is a huge time commitment. And to balance that with any sort of job is really hard. So I don't know how I balance doing the job at the university while also doing theater. And, you know, I love actors, but you guys could sort of practice your lines while you're working, maybe. Like, maybe you could... <laughs> I don't know if it works that way, depending on the job. Kind of, yeah. But in, in like, lighting design, I have to go into the theater and be in the space all that time. Right, right. So, you actually have to be there in the space. And I know for me... The job that I had when I was in college, at least the best one that I found, was working as the stage crew for the concert hall that was attached to my university. So that was really the best of both worlds because I would go from my theater stuff that I was doing and then to my stage work at the concert hall. So that was really having the best of both worlds, you know, since they were right next to each other. But yeah, it, it really is about finding those kind of jobs. Yeah. And one one more thing, which is actually, I forgot. So I was an RA and doing theater. And then somehow, thankfully, the theater department let me do 20 hours. Maybe that's too much, but 20 hours a week, like in the scene shop or the electric shop working. So I was also able to do that. And somehow, somehow I paid off college. But this all goes back to my parents who said, always, you have to pay for college. And sure, you can go into theater, but you have to pay for college. <laughs> and so I was primed for that. And Maybe I lament missing out a little bit on the college experiences, but you know, now looking back even 10 years, 15 years out of college, not having the debt was such a huge deal. And we've covered this on my show many times, but starting at zero versus starting from a negative place, I can't even explain how significant it is. But if you know anything about compounding, every little bit compounds. I do think that's so important. And I mean, for myself, I went to school at a time, even though I went to a private university, it was the first couple of years, it was 3,500 a semester, which is fairly cheap nowadays. So I left, I left with around, it was, it was like 20, 25,000 in, in college debt whenever I was done. Cause my mom took the first couple of years and then I took the last two and a half years of my schooling. So that was the debt that I had. And I hear what you're saying. And it sounds like that, yes, college, it gave you the degree, it gave you the experience that you needed, but it sounded, it sounds like that it also grew you up as a person, as a financial person, as just understanding your own money and what it really means. And it's, it's actual value, not just the dollars and cents of it, but what it actually is worth to you. Yeah. But I still feel unfortunate and a little of it was by accident, you know, and maybe that's how all of life is, is the things we learn are not because we set out to learn them. Right. Um, but I was I was very aware of not going to parties, of not living off campus, of not doing this. So I went to grad school and the way it works in lighting, unless you're going to go to NYU or someplace, but they provide you with an assistantship. So for a designer, they'll say you design three shows a year. And that'll be your campus job. And we'll give you $800 a month for that. And so you look at your budget and you say, okay, I got $800. And I went in Dallas. And so I was able, 800 is not enough to live even in, in Dallas. No, it's not. No. <laughs> not a um, month. No. But Ethan Steinle says, I'm going to make this work. I am not taking out a loan, baby. So I did three years at the $800 a month stipend. Um, and, you know, the rent was like 400 to 500. I even found a place close to campus so I could walk. Um, and then later when I had to move farther away, um, anyway, I, I made it work, but all my classmates took loans. As far as I know, I don't want to out anybody, but they all took loans and it was just like mind boggling to me. But again, I had to make sacrifices. So my second and third year, this is a secret. Nobody at grad school knows. So you're not allowed to have outside work. And the reason is obvious. You're here to work on theater, to learn lighting design, to do that. And it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. So you're not allowed to have outside work. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I, I can't help myself. So I would keep it secret. And I would, some, I started by asking permission. Can I go design this show that will pay me money? And they would say, no. So I would go design the show <laughs> and I wouldn't tell anybody and I would just get my schoolwork done and all that. You know, I act like I'm not proud of this and I never mentioned this ever, but I cleaned houses for my second and third year. So on my days that I didn't have to go into classes, 
I would go and I would say, okay, you know, I would meet up with the main cleaner and I'd say, okay, where are we going? And we would just drive around Dallas and we'd, we would clean houses and I, bathrooms were my specialty. So I was all, it was like, you go in and I don't like making beds. So this is actually perfect for me. <laughs> it's like, good, you make the bed and I will just go to the bathroom. And pretty much that's all I did because, you know, that's, there's enough work in there for a while. But I did that. And then uh, if anybody knows the, the theater, the Muni, um, mm-hmm. that's in St. Louis. So I interned there 2011 or 12, 2011, and it was minimum wage, but they provided you 40 hours a week. And that was the highest paying theater job I had at that point in my life. Mine still be actually come to think of it. <laughs> uh, I think 710 was the minimum wage. Um, but I was like living the high life because it was like, I only had to work 40 hours in the design studio. And then I had all that extra time. I didn't have to be at the shows, you know, only, only the overnight tech and then like one dress re- or dress rehearsal, which is performance. Um, because the actual dress rehearsal is in daytime and lighting can't do anything during that. Of course. <laughs> but I then would go and I, I would do landscaping. Like I would go dig holes, plant plants, uh, put on those boots and you like go into the pond and you plant grass water. I don't know. <laughs> so, but this is, so I'm interning at the Muni and then going to, to do all this. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I am making so much money at these two minimum wage jobs. And I really did feel that way, but I didn't want to have to take out loans to go back to grad school. Mm-hmm. And then even after grad school, I went back to Missouri for a, a couple months to get married. And then my wife and I moved here together. But again, I don't tell people this, but I got out and I mowed lawns. So I don't know why I'm talking about all this other than to say I chose to do all that so that I wouldn't have student loans. And I also acknowledge that I still was getting 25% of my schooling paid for. And in the case of grad school, the whole thing paid for plus the $800. And even so, I had to do all that just not to have loans. And that was a choice because I probably would be a better artist. I would probably be a better designer if I had spent more time designing and working on that. But I just knew the career I was going into and I couldn't accept having big loans. It sounds like you just prioritize differently. Yes, you acknowledge that maybe you missed out on this, missed out on that. As a whole, though, do you think that the choices you made have affected your career adversely in any way? That is a lovely question. (laughs) And I don't really know, though I do think yes. But I have no proof of that. I have no knowledge. But even if the answer is yes, then does that matter? Like, would you say, okay, yes, I did miss out on this. If I could go back, I would change it. That's true. You know, frankly, the only thing I would change would be one, if there could be more hours in a day, just so I could get. (laughs) Oh, okay. Yeah. Just change that. Got it. Okay. (laughs) But assuming that can't be changed. If I were to do it again, the only thing I regret is that my sleep schedule was really messed up from all the overnights and all the crazy hours. And I think it took me about five years to sort of get back to, I guess, what would be a normal sleep schedule. But that's the only thing, you know, it's like, you know, how could I have avoided that? So, but no, but I would really, I would still choose to go the no debt way versus better life, better career, which is, you know, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, because had I not gotten the the national tours, had I not gotten the bigger jobs that I had, I think it would have taken me longer to pay off my student loans. So it, it, yeah, it's kind of the, you went with what you knew could happen. You knew if you worked and did these odd jobs that you would pay off school. The unknown is to take that loan, hope you get a good job that can pay it off quickly so you're not drowning in debt for years on end. So it depends on uh, on priorities. And it sounds like that you chose the one that gave you, Ethan, the best chance for the kind of life you wanted to live. Ethan illustrates two of the points brought up in that New York Times article I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. One, to be more honest about money, whether that's with your family, your friends, and especially yourself. And secondly, to set financial goals, because once you're more honest about your financial situation, then you can set realistic plans in place, just like Ethan did with regards to paying off college. 
and it also enables you to help others when possible. During our conversation, without any prompting or solicitation from me, Ethan talked about the bonus episodes that I offer to monthly supporters. I just wanted to say that the Win Me Supercast page, I, Ethan Steimel, am a monthly patron of yours, and I get all your bonus content. And I just got to say, if anybody's listening and they haven't subscribed to you, that I would highly recommend that you do. I fully support you. I love what you're doing. And if you're listening and you haven't subscribed, but you want to support Patrick or help him out, please do, because I know firsthand how much this costs to keep doing and how much time and effort. I mean, it's a lot. So if anybody wants to support Patrick, I highly recommend, and I'm happy to be a supporter myself. Now, Ethan was actually very insistent that I record that part and not edit it out. And besides, I am truly grateful to Ethan and the handful of supporters that I do have. So if you'd like to help this podcast as well, then please consider becoming a monthly subscriber yourself to the various bonus episodes that come out each week. Look for the link in the show notes to whyillnevermakeit.com and then click subscribe. One of the things that has come up in your marriage is that your wife often makes more money than you. And that can be, you know, no matter the gender dynamic, that certainly plays a part. But even for myself and my husband, because he's earlier in his career than I am because of the age difference, then it can sometimes seem like that I'm I'm doing so much better. I'm further along. He wishes that he could do this or had this opportunity. And I'm like, well, at your age, I, I was right where you were. So, I mean, you're you're there. But at the same time, for you and your wife, the differences have come in the types of jobs and the type of pay that comes with that. And so what tension or strife has come from this difference in pay? I got to take a side note here and say that I love that your show exists to have conversations like this because I know that I am not alone in this. And I have never talked about it with anybody. (laughs) But when you were prepping me for the episode, you said, could you think of some stories and challenges and how you overcame them? And I say that to say, thank you for prepping me. But two, I have not overcome this one. And I don't, you know, is this really a challenge? It's just something that I am feeling. So we've been married. This year will be our ninth wedding anniversary. And after the honeymoon, we just moved here. So we got married and we've always lived in New York. When we first started out, we were making similar incomes. So on on my show, you were on my show, and you mentioned that you made $11,000 your first year as an actor. So I made, I'll say 30000 It might have been thirty-two, dollars um, But my first years were like 32, 34, 36, and not in that order. So it wasn't going up. <laughs> there, was, there was like the higher, low, higher, low. So my wife and I were making similar amounts of money for the first two or three years. And then... And what does your wife do? She works for a commercial real estate company. The best way I can describe it, she's a transaction manager for CBRE is the company, uh, which is a very big one if anybody knows. Yeah. And and real estate, you can certainly make a lot of money in that profession. Correct. And this ties into theater and the arts being such a crazy thing where one person can be making 150 a week and another person can be making 15,000 a week to, you know, whatever. Commercial real estate, it, it exists the same way. Like it's not so different actually from theater in the sense of there's the office workers who make probably less than what you expect people to be making when they say they work for a commercial real estate company. But then of course there are the brokers that have their names and their titles that are making millions and millions. So I think a lot of actors and performers and designers, we look at corporate jobs and we think, oh man, there's a steady paycheck and a great job. And that's all true, usually limited to eight hours. (laughs) Uh, Right. But there still is, you can get one of those jobs and not get paid that much. So all that to say that we were making the same amount of money. And then at some point she started making more and it it comes in different ways, like a bonus here or a bonus there. Um, And it's necessarily not, consistent. Like it's, it's not always, you know, every year is not the same. Um, but there has now never been a year where she made less than me. Cause I actually thought, I thought, Oh, for a while there, I thought, Oh, maybe I could work this where I can actually make more than her some years. And then that changed. And so it's, it's great. We're happily married. We love each other and we're aware of this disparity, 
but it does exist. And I don't know how I feel about it other than I know what career I'm in. We're all aware of the situation that doesn't escape me feeling what I feel. And like you, you alluded to the gender difference and we can all laugh about it. It's 2022. Ha ha ha. But no, that's, that's really, there is something, especially with both of our families coming from Missouri. I mean, we're the only people connected to the arts really at all. She has a cousin that's a painter and then there's me working in theater, but in our whole extended family, that's sort of it. So nobody from the family understands. And so while yes, we're all aware that that gender thing is, you know, the, the male doesn't have to be the breadwinner. Of course not. You know, this gets into a whole other topic, but th- there is that in, in, in a lot of men, there is that sense of, I, I want to be a breadwinner. I want to take care of my family. I think that innate sense in some men feel that. I know that for myself, I've never wanted to feel like I was being taken care of. I would always be, you know, taking care of myself. And I think that's just my upbringing from a single mom is that I saw her doing so much taking care of herself and me that I learned that lesson that I need to, as an adult, take care of myself and my family. So I think it comes from maybe biology, but just as much our environment and how we were nurtured and how we grew up. So for you... Yeah, maybe the male-female dynamic plays into it, but it sounds like it's more that you want to feel like you're contributing to your marriage. Yeah. And now this ties into 2020 as well, because all work stopped. And before that, I thought I was a diversified designer because I thought, oh, I can work in theater. I can work in television, news. I can work for corporate jobs. And all that stopped, including the news, you know, because... I was only part-time news. Well, they were doing it from home. They don't need lighting designers. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So it never stopped. But once it was set up at their home or whatever, it it was done with. Then I'm on unemployment. And that didn't really help. I don't know how I feel about all this, but... You know, it is just a thing where we're we're tied together. And then also living in the same space. You know, at the time, our apartment was like 240 square feet. And she was working from home and I was not working from home. (laughs) But it it was it just became like so aware in, in our relationship that there's a difference here. And it's not a problem. You know what I mean? Like it's not we're very happy but it it does exist and you can't deny it sometimes. And I also think that regardless of gender, I think all of us want to contribute to society and we all want to take care of ourselves and provide. And to be fair, I, I could, if she stopped working, we could live on the money that I bring in. However, it wouldn't be at the lifestyle or we wouldn't breathe as easier. We wouldn't feel as, as confident or comfortable or We'd have to go back to to my working 80 hours a week. (laughs) Actually, wait, it's theater. We do that already. Uh, Awkward. Yeah, yeah, we already do that. Yeah. I know that for us, for my husband and I, there have been those years where I was making more. In fact, I did that right before the pandemic that I went off to do a cruise ship job. Now, it meant I was going to be away from home for eight months. So there there was that consideration. So that was kind of a tough thing. But at the same time, both of us were in places where we just weren't making the money that we needed to, that we wanted to. So I took the job as much for us as I did just to, okay, I get to do footloose on a cruise ship and travel, okay? But I did it mostly for the the nice paycheck and to save up for us. Then the following year, pandemic happened. I'm no longer on a cruise ship and he's starting to make more money than me. So then he kind of picked up the slack. So it's been kind of this back and forth. And I think that that's a wonderful way to look at it in that you're both supporting each other when the other is not exactly where they want to be. Is, is, is that at least kind of an equilibrium that you and your wife have come to? We'll go with that. Other than the fact that I've, I never, in nine years, I don't feel like I've ever picked up the slack. I thought there was a while where I would, <laughs> but, and maybe that's why I'm secretly after this Broadway design. If I could get a long running show, if I could get a Wicked, yeah, then I can do my part in the relationship. So Patrick, I, I don't know how you, we manifest, but perhaps you and I can get on a long running Broadway show in which you can act, I can design, we can both have steady paychecks for years to come. I like this. 
That's the dream. That way, that way, our artistic finances are taken care of, and we are finally making it. So I, it's like we'll no longer need to do our podcast because we'll have it. We, we will have accomplished what we set out to do. <laughs> Why I'll never make it because I went on this podcast and talked about my hopes and dreams, which is probably not something that's going to get make those accomplished. <laughs> right. I do want to talk about your podcast, and I'm sure that over the many episodes that you've been doing, there's some takeaways that you've learned over that time. And are there some that really stick out to you that just kind of seem like, why didn't I think of that? Yeah, some of these are so obvious that it blows my mind that I didn't think of it. Like in your interview with Rebecca Selko of the Actress Fund, I remember the way she talked about budgeting was so mind-blowing to me. And I had had about 100 episodes where I had interviewed artists about budgeting and such. And then I heard Rebecca say, oh, yeah, yeah, you just figure out what you spend and then you know how much you have to make each month. It was like, oh, my gosh, it's so it's so easy. Um, so there's, there's a number of these things that people have asked me this before, like, you know, what are the trends you're seeing? And so I'm going to tell them to you, but know that they've surprised me and your listeners are not going to be surprised. They're going to say, yeah, this is obvious, but I'm just here to confirm after talking with many, many artists and asking them about their personal finances, you know, I mean, I knew that you made $11,000 your first year. How many people know that about you? Right. Now more people do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so the first thing that surprised me when I started this show, a lot of artists are apathetic toward money. And that is sort of understood, but a lot of them don't want to talk about it. And when I have a show where I say, hey, will you come and, and tell us about your struggles and your finances so that other people can hear it and know that they're not alone and or can avoid the things that you're doing, um, you know, can, can say, oh, maybe I shouldn't be an actor because. <laughs> um, but but a lot of people like it. It's not everybody that's willing to come on my show. You came and you were honest and you opened up and you talked about it. But a lot of people will not. And so that's totally okay. I totally respect that. I'm not one to put myself out there publicly either, but I feel so strongly that it's important. And maybe there's somebody listening and saying, oh, I hear what Ethan is. I'm going to make sure not to work 80 plus hours a week. And I am going to focus on my craft a little bit more. And then maybe I'll get that Broadway show before 10 years. <laughs> yeah. If nothing else, these kind of conversations really make us think. And I think it's important what you're doing because so many people don't want to discuss their own, but they'll happily listen to somebody else's. And I think that as long as you can continue to bring on people that will discuss it, then it's still helping those that may have less uh, either financial control or just financial knowledge to where they feel comfortable with it. I think that's a really good one. What's a second one that you've thought of or found? How cautious theater people are with their savings. Because I've always thought, okay, you don't want money sitting in a bank account. You want to get that into investments right away, right? To me, that's just, if you read how to be good with money, that's what it says. Invest your money. Saving it is losing it to inflation, blah, blah, blah. But talking to, to enough performers and stuff, that really is so true. Actors want to have that nest egg readily available for when they're not going to be working the next week. Um, and just for example, Wilson Chin, he's the set designer for the first play that came back to Broadway, which was Passover, he saved $30,000 in his checking account. And his bank reached out to him and said, you really shouldn't have 30000 in cash just sitting there. You really need to put that to work. So he put it to work. Especially in the bank savings account. It's like, that's not doing anybody any good. Yeah, exactly. So, but that just surprised me because I was like, why would you let that much accumulate? I understand wanting to have for a rainy day, but you know, most investments you can get out of if you need to, you know, maybe a little penalty or something. And then I actually ran into somebody who wasn't in theater. So Maitre Gopala Krishna, she's started a uh, company. She's the CEO of a company that is educating people about bonds and bonds are super safe, but she's 29 and all her investments are in bonds. Which goes against financial advice as well, because usually they say diversify and this is the rule that I've heard, is that the percentage of bonds for your portfolio should correlate to your age. So if you're 20 years old, you only need 20%. But then once you're 
80 years old, then 80% of it should be in bonds because it is more stable. So obviously she is not following that advice. Correct. And I even asked her about that. I said, hey, what do you think? I call it the rule of 110, which is you take 110, you subtract your age, and then whatever number is left, that's how much you put in risky stuff. And then the other smaller amount you put into bonds. Um, But it just surprised me how many people I've talked to that are so worried about the stock market or so averse to it. And I think it's because maybe they don't know enough about it or or it's just that fear mentality. Um, and that's another thing I learned on the show was that people focus on a loss 30 times more than they focus on a win. So if, if you have two stocks and one goes down $100 and the other goes up $100, the only thing you will ever remember is that the one went down $100. You'll never, ever, ever remember that you also went up and it was a wash. So these are just things that surprise me because I think artist is a risky career as freelancers. Oh, absolutely. So it just yeah. surprised and, me. And, and, I, and I think one of the downfalls of being a freelancer, and I'm, I'm fortunate enough to not have credit card debt, but I do know a lot of people get into credit card debt. Is that something that you've found has been a troublesome spot for a lot of artists? Okay. Credit cards surprise me so much. And, and maybe from listening to how I didn't want to go into debt and have an aversion for debt, maybe you'll understand why it surprised me. But I have always paid a credit card off. Like maybe once or twice in my life, I just sort of forgot or something because I don't have auto pay because I have control issues. But I have always paid them off. You know, to me, a credit card is just for what money do I have in the bank? Okay, I'll pay it off. But if I don't have that money in the bank, I'm not putting it on a credit card. Um, And I am fortunate enough. I am privileged enough that in my life, I have never had to dip onto a credit card to, you know, cover expenses. I've always been able to make the choice. Um, But almost every single person I've said, hey, do you have some advice to help people? And it's always, always don't rack up credit card debt. Don't put money on credit card debt. And people have these terrible stories of how they got into it. And it's just like student loans. Now, student loans is what they call good debt. It's an acceptable by society that we have these massive loans. Credit card is not accepted by society as being a good debt, even if you used it to pay off your college or something. (laughs) Um, But it's just this this thing that enough people have had so many problems and I've come across enough, a couple people that actually have lived without credit cards, which is like- um, That's a whole other way of living, yeah. Actor Chuck Cooper, he got into such a spot with them that he just got rid of them and was like, I can't deal with them. And so I'm paying cash equivalent. And if you don't take a card, then I just, we have to figure something out. So, so that was like, if my number one thing from the show is, you know, just be cautious around the credit card debt. Yeah, it's so tough. And this will really date me, but at the same time, I think it's an important historical lens to look at it. Whenever I was coming up and started using credit cards in the late 90s and early 2000s, at that time, credit card interest rate was maybe 5 6%. You know, if, if you had good credit, then 5 or 6%, which is unheard of now. But 5 or 6%, and if it started getting up to 7 or 8%, I would literally call my credit card and be like, no, I needed to go back down. So interest rates were so much lower then. Savings rates were 2 to 3%. So having money in a bank would actually make you money because it's two to three percent interest whereas now we're like 0.1 or 0.2 percent interest and now credit cards are 15 to 20 percent it's really mind-boggling that it's kind of gone topsy-turvy that credit cards are so much more expensive and no one can save anything whereas just 20 years ago it was the exact opposite yeah you have to be the one saving for yourself. You have to be. That's why it's important to have a Roth IRA is because you control that. That is yours completely, no one else's. So you have to take care of yourself. So that's a trend that we see over and over is remember to save. Paying yourself first, even if it's a little bit, you just have to do it. And actually we had an episode with a sound designer named Cricket Myers. And she talked about, she downloaded an app that every time she swiped her credit card, it would, I think, take like round up to a dollar, or but it would take like 15 cents, 20 cents. Right, I've heard of that, yeah. And somehow she said after six years, it had pulled out $50,000 into an account. What? I'm not making that up. In just six years time? Yeah, and she's like, look, I realize that that is insane that I'm saying that, but think of how many times a day you swipe your credit card. If it's taking a quarter. (laughs) 
And especially if you're like both of us and, and you are able to pay it off, then that's just kind of free money, almost. Yeah, it's, it's like forced savings. Yeah, forced savings. It's the same thing as a mortgage. Why people love a mortgage is you're forced to save. And I think that's the same idea. And I know I think the app Acorns, that was big when they started, was that they would round up to the next dollar and take it. Again, I have control issues, so I've never trusted these apps. But that's one way to make sure you're paying yourself first is have it siphon off to, a, to an account you never see or something like that. Yeah, and, and I think one of the biggest things that I hear you talk about, but also that you mention on your podcast is that it's so important to keep track of our income and outcome. I think that, that that's, I think that's the core of, of any budgeting, of any, whether you use credit cards or don't, it's like you have to know what's coming in, you have to know what's going out, because if you don't know that, then none of your financial decisions are going to make any sense. Yeah. That's something from your interview with Rebecca Selko that came up was track it. You know, if it's measurable, then we can take action on it. And so the tracking is so important because it makes you aware. Because if you don't know what you're doing, if you're living in a, in a cloud, if, if you don't want to face the reality of what is, it's like, you know, in your head what your budget is. You know, if you're under or over every month, you know, if you have a good paying job coming up that you're going to be okay and you can breathe easier. But if you actually put it down on paper and look at it and are aware of it, then it changes you because it, it makes you aware of it and it allows you to, okay, I'm going to consciously choose to continue this way <laughs> or I am going to think about some of these things and I'm going to think about the future self. And I can't, I think this is a lovely thought exercise is to imagine yourself in 20 years and just think, Ethan, in 20 years, what will I be? Where will I be? And what savings will I have? And just imagine yourself there drinking your coffee on a lovely afternoon knowing that you have some money saved or something. <laughs> well, I think just like we all have bucket list roles, we all have that five-year plan, as you said, that you came to New York with. We all have these hopes and dreams for our careers, but I think you bring up a good point that we need to have those same aspirations, those same forward-thinking thoughts about our finances and how secure we are. And, and I think we all want to envision ourselves being in a secure place. So then... The only way to do that is by knowing what we have and knowing how to get there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is less prevalent in actors because actors know their bodies will give way at some point. But in the design community, a lot of people's retirement plan is to keep on working because you really sort of can design lights until your body goes. You know, And there, there are stories of people designers dying in the cab going from one show to another and I refuse if anybody listening has the idea that they're just going to work until they're dead yes you're an artist you'll never stop working you'll never retire in that sense but please make a retirement plan I do not accept that I'm just going to work that is not a plan I don't accept it if you save you can have the option to continue to working you can have the option to continue your art, but you have to make a plan because that is just an answer that I will not accept. I will not allow you to say that you're, that's your plan. No, it's not. No, it's not. You, you can make a plan. Even if you can't fulfill it and keep up with the plan and keep up with the contributions, at least make a plan. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's a great way to end this. And I think that's the culmination of everything we're talking about. Make a plan, know what you're doing and where you're headed. And Ethan, this has been such a great, great conversation. I appreciate you being honest and sharing your own self. I know you normally are asking the questions, so I appreciate you letting me turn the mic around on you and find out more about you. This has been so great, so great to talk to you. Patrick, I cannot thank you enough. And I subscribe to your show. I listen every time a new episode drops. And your guests have been fantastic. The conversations are so relatable, so easy to follow, such just a break from the everyday. And, you know, there's something so satisfying about sitting on a subway car, crowded, jammed in <laughs> with a bunch of people and listening to Why I'll Never Make It in my ears with the noise canceling. And I'm just in a zone with these lovely people having just really relatable conversations. So thank you for having me and thank you for having your show.
Thank you so much for joining Ethan and me today. And I'd also like to thank those of you who went to Podcash a while back and wrote a note there in hopes I'd be chosen to receive supporting funds for this podcast. Well, while I may not have been chosen, I did receive some very thoughtful feedback nonetheless. One listener said, Why I'll Never Make It is a love letter to artists working in the acting and performing arts industry. Patrick gives you an honest and truthful inside look into an industry that looks super glamorous. The provocative title may scare you, but there is no other podcast like it. Well, thank you so much for those kind words. It is heartening to hear others understanding and appreciating what I try to do with each and every episode. Why I'll Never Make It is a WinMe Media production and is part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Background music in this episode is by John Bartman and Blue Dot Sessions. I am your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Join me next time as we talk more about Why I'll Never Make It. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting and loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.